Hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Roy Woody. Thank you for tuning in again to another edition of Red Peace Machine. I'm joined by Susie Sheeler, Ramesh Nadine, and Roy Casagranda. Uh, how's everyone doing this morning? Uh, I'm going to do a check-in. Uh, how's it going, uh, Ramesh? Doing okay. So, so damn glad to have hot water, to have power, to have gas, these amazing luxuries. Um, yeah, yeah. And glad to be sort of connected to the world again. The little, hmm, I, I think I enjoyed being being entirely disconnected for the past week. Susie, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Uh, I too am very happy to have um, the my standard of living met again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, just some water uh, and electricity. I think I miss the electricity most because I could boil the water um, or we had snow when the water was off, you know, and you could use that for your toilets and you can purchase water, but electricity, man, that sucked. I was reading by candlelight. I felt like Abe Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> but I was reading The Blood Throne of Caria. Oh. I heard it good. I heard it was yeah, really five good. Five stars. Check it, it out. <laughs> What was the guy's name who wrote that, though? <laughs> this just turned into a shameless plug. <laughs> Sorry, it just kind of, it was true, though. I was, I, that's what I read. <laughs> and then, Roy, how are y'all doing over there? I, I'm fantastic now. <laughs> uh, yeah, like, there's nothing better than to hear that your novel's being read. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really um, good. I suggest it to everyone. Mm-hmm. Be, yeah you know it's been a it's been an interesting uh time uh, yeah. I, I i have a lot of uh I, i'm having a lot of emotions and i'm trying to sort them out um they range from what to uh anger to uh probably there's probably a little bit of fear mixed in the in there you know to be if i'm being totally honest uh a lot of anxiety. It's it, it's been an interesting few days. I think the dominant emotion I'm having though is just pure white hot rage. Yeah. Yeah. I am really angry. And who who do you uh, uh, point that to directly? So so I wish I had one person I could invest this all into. <laughs> but I don't. What I have is a series of decades, a set of decades, that about four of them that I think have led to this moment. Starting with the election of Ronald Reagan, the United States has been taken over by an ideology that led to Texas not being able to handle what should, what should have been just a common day event. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, th this, was, this was a Texan dream. Or not a Texan yeah. dream, a libertarian dream. One my dream that we were in. Free market <laughs> rule for all. Again, we're being uh, <laughs> bailed out by a socialist kind of idea, right? Uh, the the stimulus package, which I disagree with. I think that's a rescue package, but that's a socialist kind of a thing. We're depending on the government to help us get back to normal, right? Am I wrong? So so. This is one of those let's let's be careful with our terms things. But okay. technically, if you have a state-run economy, it's mercantilism. If you have a worker-run economy, it's socialism. Okay. Um, but but what what's happened is because the Soviet Union was never socialist, it was only ever mercantilist. 
okay. people, but it always claimed to be socialist, right? Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Right. People falsely associate what the Soviet Union was doing uh, with socialism. The, the state that the socialism, the closest on earth is Sweden. And it's a, it's a capitalist socialist hybrid. It's about 50, 50. Um, and, and it has a bunch of mercantilism in it as well, right? There's a lot of state, state run <laughs> portions of the economy. So it's, it's actually a three-way hybrid, not a- Is it a straight democracy, a true democracy, or is it represented? No, there, there is no state on earth that's a true democracy. Having said that, we have states that definitely allow for an increased voice from the Republic and, and Sweden is one of them. There's, there's about, uh, without counting them out, I think there's about seven. Maybe maybe more, maybe ten, some, somewhere in that area. And they're almost all run by women. They almost all have uh, women chief executives. Imagine that. Finland, which is one of the most democratic states on the planet, not only is the woman prime minister, the entire cabinet, it's 100% women. Wow. Yeah. I'm part Finnish, so I'm, <laughs> I'm very proud. <laughs> So yeah, this winter storm has really, I mean, it's really shown what happened uh, with the Texas infrastructure, right? Um, because we have it, what the history is that we, or that Texans voted uh, to be its own separate grid, right? Uh, a set, a, uh, apart from the federal, because if you look at the map, uh, I think Roy, you showed me that map where it has like the sections of the power grid and then Texas is, is literally its own power grid. Well, looking at Ramesh's eyes, it looks like he's pulling it up. Are you? Uh -huh. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at the map right now. Share it so everybody can see it. Uh, like, I don't have it pulled up. Do you want me to pull it oh, up? Oh, damn. It's basically really far west Texas, like El Paso, um, isn't on our grid. They're on right. And also, Panhandle, parts of North Texas and East Texas are not on the grid either. Uh -huh. Okay. So, but El Paso is on <laughs> the Pacific grid or whatever they call it, the West grid where California is. Is that right? And then. And then we've got the Eastern grid and everybody meets up in the middle up top. And then you come down to Texas and just little pieces on the outside. And then the whole rest of it is, is this gambling energy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It looks almost like it's a part of the uh, time zones almost. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it yeah. Looks like. yeah. Uh -huh. no, it's very similar. Yeah. And wh what's really interesting is that uh, Northern part of Baja California in Mexico is actually in the U.S. electrical grid. I, mm -hmm. I didn't know that until recently. <laughs> and do we use some of Canada's? In yeah, well, Canada and the United States are totally integrated. So like the New York and the whole part of New England is in the Quebec grid. Oh, wow. And what about Mexico to uh, the United States? Is there any, I wonder? I mean, I think it's only Northern Baja California. Uh, oh, like okay. Tijuana, that area, that's connected to the United States, but I don't think anything else in Mexico is. Oh, okay. Oh, I'm in Mexico to the United States, but I guess, no, they don't share that way. They just share uh, just that Baja section. Just share. that little piece of Baja California is connected okay. to a U.S. grid. Uh, I mean, Texas technically is connected to, to Mexico. We could transmit power to Mexico and vice versa. It's just, it's not officially part of the grid. Mm -hmm. There we go. Look at that. Now, for people who are listening, we're just looking at the grid here, or the grids here in the United States. Um, and we have one that it looks like Western WECC Western inner connection. And then we've got it's green. And so MRO 
I don't know what MRO is, but it seems to be the same color as Alaska interconnections. Mm -hmm. That might be wrong though. Anyway, Texas oh. is on its own grid. Well, what about the no, Alaska is on its own grid too. Also, it looks like Florida is also. Huh. Yeah, yeah, I didn't realize that about Florida. And so is the southern and the. Mm -hmm. the I don't get that then. They're well, all but, just part of federal oversight, and we're not. Well, so the the way the law works is if you're interacting between states, then then you then you are subject to federal mm -hmm. oversight because oh, okay. of interstate trade. Got it. But but if if you're separate, so I guess Alaska, Texas, and Florida, because we're separate, we can we can not deal with federal oversight. But I actually don't know anything about the Alaska and Florida grid, so. So they, what would have happened if we, um, it, 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 I guess I'm trying to get around to the social contract theory and I'm wondering if that has, if we're trying to equate that without saying socialist to a federal, if we had belonged to this federal program, would that well, have entered us into a social contract theory of sorts? I think before we get into social contract theory, which I'd like to do for sure, um, let's let's establish what happened. Okay. <laughs> because I think you know, if you don't live in Texas, you might. If you don't live in the United States, you're probably bewildered out of your mind. If you don't live in Texas and you live in the United States, you're probably thinking, "Wow, really?" <laughs> so Wasn't Greg Abbott right though? Didn't he say it was part of the Green New Deal and the windmills froze <laughs> over and then <laughs> the solar well, panels were covered with ice? What do you expect <laughs> from a Democrat? Good? <laughs> you mean Greg Abbott? Greg Abbott, yeah. <laughs> DJ TJ blamed all of this on our Democratic governor. That's hilarious. <laughs> he did. He, I mean, on video. That is he so had, sad. Y'all have the stupidest Democratic governor. If y'all had a real governor, then maybe y'all wouldn't be in this situation. What? <laughs> That's what he said. Like, I'll send you the video. It's yeah, horrible. Send the video. He's all coked up. I think there's some guns behind him. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> So what did happen? What, what's the truth? <laughs> okay, so for those of you who don't know, we had an ice storm on Thursday. Hold on, I'm gonna bring up the date because I've lost track of time because we've been in this for so long. So Last it was Thursday. Thursday the 11th of February. And uh, as a result, much of the city shut down Friday, which would be, which is normal. There's nothing weird about that for, for Texas. Nobody knows how to drive in the ice. It's really important to keep us off the roads <laughs> as we much as possible. In the rain. Yeah. So then um, the temperatures continue to plunge, and we actually got snow uh, over that Saturday. A bunch of snow fell. I think it was six inches here in Austin. Um, and at that point, I don't think anybody fully understood where this was going. Um, ERCOT, which is the Energy Reliability Council of Texas, it's poorly named, it should be UCOT, the Energy Unreliability Council of Texas, <laughs> did absolutely nothing to prepare for the storm. So what they should have been doing, because I knew the storm was coming, I was preparing my garden. I, like I had a, an olive tree I was worried about, I went and covered it. <clears throat> um, so like, if I was preparing my garden, why wasn't ERCOT preparing the state? And what they should have been doing was stockpiling coal and gas so that we would have an energy reserve in the event that there was an increase in demand, which if it's gonna get to five degrees, <laughs> there's gonna be an energy demand increase 
And they blamed windmills, which in my, I mean, we don't use that much power from windmills here and they weren't winterized. I mean, that's why they stopped is they hadn't been winterized as far as I understand. So at one point, Austin and Houston, I, I really don't know about the whole state, but 60% of the households no longer had power. So in my mind, that means somewhere around 60% of the energy that was being that was on demand wasn't being produced. Um, renewable resources like solar and wind account for 10% of Texas's energy production. So even if 100% of our renewables went away, that only accounts for 10 of the 60 missing percentage points. Um, so it's, it's one of those, let's distract the public with bullshit nonsense. We did lose windmills in West Texas and it's because they weren't winterized but we're not, that's not, that's not more than 5% of our energy production. Our windmills in the Gulf uh, were, were, were still operating. So we, we were still getting wind energy. For the record, Australia has windmills in Antarctica that it, that it generates energy from. And they're in Antarctica. Like, I don't feel like I need to say anything else. It's not that wind can't function in a cold temperature. It's that Texas didn't winterize its windmills. Um, we were hit by a storm like this in the panhandle 10 years ago in 2011 and the federal government did a study and it concluded that what Texas needed to do was winterize its infrastructure and 10 years later we did absolutely zero, nothing. So in other words, uh, not only did ERCOT not prepare recently for this, we, we've had a 10 year lead that told us that we need to winterize the whole system and we we did nothing. Okay, because we like to rough it. We like to, we're like, we like, we to like yeah, exactly. We want to see the, see it happen first. We're like, oh, okay, I guess we, okay, maybe we'll do something. And it, it's always that, yeah, it's like, well, this is a once, once, a once in a lifetime storm. It's never going to happen again. Uh, <laughs> they better, I mean, climate change, <laughs> they better prepare. And, and storms like this are the new norm. Um, they're not a one-off event. So I'll just tell you a fun little thing that happened uh, in 2012. So in 2002, new scientists uh, produced an article where they talked about, I think it was 14 different things that climate change was gonna do to us. You know, like sea level rise, increased temperatures, acidification of the oceans, ice melt, like all the different things that we were facing. And um, Greenland becoming good real estate. Um, in 2012, they decided they were gonna do a 10 year update. So in 2002, there was this bell curve, like this is the worst case scenario, this is the best case scenario, and most likely it'll be in here in the middle. And in 2012, they decided to do an update and they were going, the article, the article is gonna come out at the time that the election was about to happen, the US election, it was coming out in November. And um, that also happens to be the moment when Superstorm Sandy hit the, the East Coast and, dis and destroyed the entire state of New York and New Jersey too, well, was that it? obviously a little bit of exaggeration. Um, and they managed it a lot better than Texas did, right? It, took, it did not take them two weeks to get back on their feet. <laughs> uh, Superstorm Sandy was actually the convergence of three storms. There was... Um, a cyclone in the Atlantic that merged with a, a Canadian storm and a storm coming off the, the middle of the United States. And when the three storms merged, it created what 
what got called a superstorm, and it was a hurricane that was spinning like a hurricane, dumping snow like something out of an awful sci-fi movie. <laughs> Sharknado. <laughs> yeah. And and the 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 guys at New Scientists were like, okay, so the hair is standing up on the back of our necks right now as we're sending this to print because we're sending this to print as Superstorm Sandy is clobbering the United States East Coast. And we predicted Superstorm Sandy, well, the scientific community predicted Superstorm Sandy in 2002. What they said was by 2100, we were going to start to see North Atlantic cyclones that dump snow. <laughs> oh my God. 2100 was 98 years later. Here we are 10 years later and it happened. We're freaking out. And then they went through and they looked at all of the, I think the number in my head is 14, at all of the things that were affected. And they were all one order of magnitude worse than the 2002. Sea rise had literally gone up 10 times faster. Temperature had gone up 10 times, but everything was 10 times faster, 10 times worse, including Superstorm Sandy's arrival. Instead of it being a hundred years later, it was 10 years later. And I, the fact that Texas wasn't prepared for this shows irresponsibility in the aftermath of Superstorm Sandy. Like here we are nine years later and Texas still hasn't figured this out. Well, we've got this attitude, this uh, it can't happen here attitude about everything. I mean, no matter, now we've seen it and that's everybody saying, oh, we don't need to do anything. It's a hundred years. We won't, it's not going to happen again in my lifetime type of thing. I mean, I've heard people say that, oh, it's a once in a lifetime thing. And I'm well, even so, don't you want to get ready for that? And how do you know what's going to happen in a different situation? You know, something else could happen that we need to prepare for. But we've just got this, we're American, sort of like a teenager, you know, I, I can live forever. I'm going to live forever. Uh, it's the history of Texas being, cow I guess, cowboys, right? <laughs> got to rough it. <laughs> I mean, the mayor that, uh, was he, I forget, uh, the Colorado. Colorado City, Colorado, Texas. Texas. Yeah, Colorado City. Uh, mayor who said, hey, you know, people need to stop trying to get things from the government and they need to yeah. uh, pretty, pretty much pull yourself up by your bootstraps, even though you don't have boots right now. <laughs> it's right. that cowboy attitude, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, I think this is a problem that, that goes back to why we even created government to begin with. Um, so there's, there's two things I think that are, that are going on here. On the one hand, Susie, you identified it, which is you know, there's this thing that people do where they don't want to be inconvenienced or do extra work. And so preparing for something as abstract as the future is, is hard. It's hard to convince people, you know, we really ought to do X because if we don't, when Y happens, we're gonna get hosed. Um, on the other hand, there's the problem of, we know that things are going to happen. So, you know, like, how do I prevent myself from getting hosed? So I've got to deal with the, I don't want to, I don't want to use the word lazy. I don't, I think that's an inappropriate word. Um, but maybe just sort of the avoidance thing that we do, the, the, the living in our heads too much. Thing. Oh, we can do it tomorrow if we need. Right. Why well, do now what I can put off till tomorrow, which exactly. is what we've been doing for 40 years with global warming and <laughs> we're going to pay the price for this. Um, the first government that was ever created was probably created in Egypt 6,500 years ago. And the reason was, is they occasionally had famines and the famines were caused by 
one of two things. Um, first of all, Egypt doesn't get much precipitation, right? Rain is not part of Egypt's agriculture equation at all. Uh, when it rains, people are like, what, is God mad at us? <laughs> what, what is this about? And Egypt doesn't have the infrastructure for it. Like when it rains in Cairo, the streets don't really have gutters. <laughs> the water just sort of doesn't know where to go. Okay. But um, what happens is it rains in Central Africa, and then that, those rains then flood the Nile. And then the Nile goes over its banks and floods the farm fields and creates enough moisture that you can run your farm off of it. And by the way, refertilizes the soil so you, can, you don't have to have fertilizer. So it's, it's an amazing process. It made, it's why there are pyramids in Egypt because Egypt geographically was this fantastic location. And it, and it made it so that they had a yeah. head start on all the, the rest of the world because they had this amazing agriculture system. But there was a drawback and that is rain in Central Africa isn't necessarily always reliable Sometimes it rains too much and the farm fields stay wet for too long and the food rots in the field. Sometimes it doesn't rain enough and you end up with a drought and people starve in both cases. So to, to solve that, they, they came up with the concept of a granary um, where you would store as a community, you would store your grain. You couldn't do it as an individual because there wouldn't be enough, the, since the Nile floods, you couldn't store the food in your house because your house is going to flood. So they needed to build a structure and then put the granary on top of the structure. So they had to have it raised up out of the floodplain. So they had to build a mound. And so the only way to do that was to, as a community, cooperate to create that. And then once they did, they ran into a problem, which was over time, the trauma of the famine, the previous famine, fades from our memory. And people start to go, geez, why am I, right? If I have, if you have to make the granary work, if you have to, produce two crops a year, one that you eat and then one that you store because the food eventually rots and you have to replace the old stored food. If you have to do that, you're like, wow, I could literally cut my workload in half and, and be just fine and not care about the future. So the, Texas did that in 1996 when the Republicans got hold of the Senate. Uh, they did mass tax cuts. And where did they take the funding away from? Infrastructure. And so rather than update our infrastructure, we let our infrastructure start to fall behind. It's great if you're a 1996 taxpayer in Texas, it's catastrophic if you're that person's grandchild. Right? right. And so what ended up happening was the granary operators realized they had to do something to convince people that was not rational. There was no rational appeal that you could make. You will die if there's another famine isn't gonna work. People aren't rational. And so what the granary operators had to do was literally manipulate and trick people into bringing the grain. And the way they did it was, so God came to me in a dream yesterday or some, some story like this. We don't know the exact story. And God said, if you bring the grain, you will be rewarded. And if you don't bring the grain, you will be punished. Nice. And it's the perfect statement because if there is a famine and you brought the grain, mm -hmm. the reward is that those guys are giving you the food back and you get to live. And if you didn't bring the grain, you're going to die and God's punishing you. It's foolproof. And, and so in an instant, government and organized religion was founded on the banks of the Nile, wow. fused together in order to trick people into doing what was in their best interest. 
Well, we don't learn from history. I mean, and again, we always, I, I think it's that teenage thing. We just think, you know, that's not going to happen to me. It's not going to happen again. Childbirth. Women forget the pain of childbirth. So they have another child. <laughs> but right? that's also biological. Yeah. There that's, are literally chemicals yeah. released into a woman's brain that delete memories. <laughs> but just the right ones. <laughs> and I'm very grateful for the record. Yeah. Because I have two children as a result. <laughs> and so we know uh, one, one of the things, one of the issues that happened was with uh, the gas pipelines. They were frozen over. So that's another thing that happened, right? Um, and they're trying to say, yeah, well, they're trying to, of course, we, we keep bringing it back to the windmills, but uh, the gas, our, our uh, natural gas infrastructure is what powers majority of Texas and with them freezing over and they didn't, they didn't winterize any of it is a huge issue so it, it really is i mean this really comes down to irresponsible government which actually goes back to your colorado city mayor thing where he said people are lazy and they expect the socialist handout um he also said survival of the fittest only the strong will survive like what the yeah. First of all, it's just six inches of snow. Well, didn't Dan Patrick say that we would be willing to go without power for, uh, you know, Rick Perry. a year? Oh, was it Rick Perry? We, we, yeah, as Texans, for, right? <laughs> we can do it. We'll suffer through with no power or water. We just want to maintain our independence. I think, wasn't it Dan Patrick who said that old people would happily die to keep yes. the economy running? That's what it was. Uh, yeah. Some, some yeah. old people in my family got really upset about that for about four days. And then they were like, yeah. Lieutenant <laughs> <laughs> Dan. Lieutenant <laughs> Dan. We got bald shrimp. <laughs> you have to fry the Gulf Coast shrimp or you're not going to be able to eat it. Oh, yeah. It's just full of mercury. Mm. Does frying do anything for the mercury? <laughs> no, but it makes it taste better. Okay. okay. As long as we're clear about that. <laughs> this shrimp has a strange metallic taste. Yeah, yeah. fry it. Fry it. Catch <laughs> up. You're good. <laughs> so then to go back to that mayor, that poor mayor in Colorado City. I feel like I'm picking on him. So Thomas Hobbs wrote a book called The Leviathan. And it's not actually the start of social contract theory. It, social contract theory actually has, there's an argument to be made that um, mirrors for princes actually is the birth of social contract theory. And that, that originated, we think of Machiavelli, but it actually originated in uh, the, the part of the world from Spain to Pakistan. <laughs> mirrors for that, princes? Mirrors for princes. Uh, that was majority Muslim eventually, although it didn't start out that way. When the Arabs left the Arabian Peninsula and conquered everything from Spain to Pakistan. <laughs> and um, what Mirrors for Princes was, was a, an attempt by a philosopher to explain to the, the political leadership what their role should be, what it ought to be, how they could be effective um and, and also give them strategies for you know like how to manipulate how to get how to get it done when you, you can't use rationality to get it done 
And of course, we think of Machiavelli because we've erased all those Muslims because they were Muslims, they were brown. We don't like listening to brown people, especially when they're Muslim. Um, and we just focus on Machiavelli. But anyway, so that's the real origins of social contract theory. But by the time we get to the Leviathan, social Hobbes sort of formalizes what social contract theory is, which is an explanation first of what the state of nature is, and then why we left it and went to civil society. And the now, state of nature is war. Is that well, right? Well, according to Hobbes, the state of nature is war. But Locke says the state of nature is actually this really paradisical place. Like it was, you, you wanted to be there. Um, and Rousseau also agrees with Locke on that, that, that the state of nature was really lovely, especially if you're a man, not so much if you're a woman. Um, and are they all talking about the state of nature of man or the state of nature as, as uh, holistic, the, the world? So what they're really trying to do is figure out what the difference between Europe and the Native Americans is. Oh, brown. Well, yeah. <laughs> and they're looking at Native American society and going, wow, look at that. And then look at us. And they were trying to contrast and understand what it was, right? Because the old world in their mind was civilized. Really the whole thing. Although they, they after a while, they begin to try to recast Africa in the same way that the Native Americans were. It's why we talk about African tribes and Native American tribes, and then we talk about European nations. Got it. That, that, that language is intentional because people in the state of nature have mm -hmm. tribes, people who are in civil society have nations, which is actually a misuse of the term, tribe is a subset of a nation. It, it's, they're not, right? Like if I say I'm German, that's my nation. If I say I'm Bavarian, that's my tribe. So, so Europeans have tribes too, but in the in the the careful rearranging of words and how we use them, there it's designed to demote. Right. right? Exactly. Exactly. And you get, and, you, get a, you even get a perception in your mind just think of tribes versus nation. Exactly. Yeah. It's so Frank. primitive. Uh, you get like a spear in their hand or right. or a leather shield, and and a nation. It's this modern thing. That's exactly right. Yeah. So. So what Hobbes says is the state of nature is a state of war where it's every person for themselves. And as a result, nothing can be ever produced, right? Because if I go plow a field and plant it, there's nothing to prevent my neighbors from coming and stealing my crop. And if I try to defend my property, I might get killed. And so as a result, I have no incentive to produce crop because it's just too dangerous. I'm, I'm, I'm drawing attention to myself because now my neighbors are looking at my crop going, I'm going to kill him and take his crop. And so in the state of nature, it's all the time, it's warfare and it's violent and it's horrible. And he says, our lives were short, mean and brutish. So what happens is at some point, we reach the conclusion as a community that this sucks, <laughs> this is terrible. <laughs> How do we get out of this? And somebody says, why don't we have a sovereign, a single individual that we invest everything into and we hand everything over to? We give them our liberty, our lives, our property, everything. And then that person is now responsible for running a state and then the state organizes us, creates security, food security, shelter, violent, security from violence, 
And when you think about it, that's Maslow's first two hierarchy of needs, right? They're, that the food and, and, and um, shelter and then security. And so Hobbes says, as a result, we're willing to let the sovereign do anything to us, sentence us to death, send us to war, tax us, whatever it is, because we're getting that security as a result. So what the Colorado City mayor does is reveals the truth about conservatism in the United States, especially Texas, because what he did was he, he right, as a general rule, conservatives like Hobbes and then liberals like Locke and then socialists like Rousseau. Socialists have serious problems with Rousseau, but in principle, they think that he, he speaks to some truth, that the state is oppressive. And, you know, the way to, the way to solve that would be to create a truly democratic society where the, where the workers were, were determining policy as opposed to the state. Um, the, the, but here we are, this conservative saying, the state owes you nothing. The, the why do I have this state? <laughs> yeah, why am I paying taxes? What's the point? What's the point of being subject to the military and, and the police and the and execution if I commit a crime the state doesn't like if I'm getting nothing in return? There, there's the contract then is broken. And that's what we just experienced. We we just experienced the social contract being broken by Texas. We were literally freezing to death. And the state was saying, oh, we don't know. And they're, put, and they're blaming mm -hmm. it on everyone but themselves. When, when, it, when this boiled down to conservatism, which is the, the story, you know, the grasshopper and the ant story, mm -hmm. <laughs> it turns out the conservatives are the grasshoppers. Right, right. <laughs> how did we get here? <laughs> and why are we electing those guys? And the answer is they keep promising to cut our taxes and we don't care about the future. We're those irrational people that those Egyptian, those Egyptians had to manipulate to save themselves. Well, don't you think that's? I mean, I I guess we kind of touched on this. It, it feels like that's the human condition, is. But, but then there's a whole cadre of us who are like, no, the community should be supported. We should be paying taxes. We do need to take care of one another. And the, it's just it's built this conflict between me, me, me short-term thinking and then long-term thinking and community thinking has been hardwired now into American ideology. Yeah. And on the, on the right, we have the me, I only care about myself in the short-term conservatives. In the middle are the liberals who are like, well, I do like myself and I do think about the short-term, but you know, I guess I'll give those guys crumbs. And then the socialists who are only really just now getting their start who are like, we really need to spend way more time focusing on the community and developing the future and making sure there's a world for the future. Right. But the fact that we're just now getting to the socialist part of this equation is shocking. Like, what have we been done for the last 70 years? It's like we've been in some kind of stupor. Something. I mean, even even like uh, Fred Hampton was, was calling for socialism, right? Because he said the only way to uh, defeat capitalism is to use socialism or, you know what I mean? Yeah, so it's absolutely. It's been the 60s and before, before that, <laughs> probably even. I mean, with FDR. Yeah. yeah. Didn't Jeff Bezos like win capitalism? Aren't we done? <laughs> Give him a gold medal, okay, take the good. money, we're good. good. Exactly. Yeah, you would think. I mean, what, really, what is there left to gain? What is there left to do? What is there left to achieve if you're on the capitalist end of the equation? Yeah. 
I don't understand. Like, more what money, what is the difference money. in your life between $10 million and $10 billion? Like, what can you do at $10 billion that you couldn't do at $10 million? I don't understand. It's a scorecard. Do you be a little bit better than the other guy. He has the most toys, and I'm telling you, that's Bezos. I don't know anybody else who's got more toys than that man. Yeah. They're all aiming for that title of this, the most the most rich person in America or the that's, world. Yeah, that's right. why Trump hated him so much is that he had more money than he did. But it, by that metric, he should have hated me too. And I'm broke. Exactly. <laughs> like I was thinking the same thing. I have more money than Trump does. <laughs> I am negative. <laughs> negative in the negative. I only owe a hundred dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. Oh, man. <laughs> Not $100 million. Right. He is so... God, I hope he goes down. God, I hope he goes down. Well, but that's that's the genius of Trump. His whole life has been a giant con. And he has faked it so successfully that even when he's worth negative, people walk around going, he's a billionaire. Yeah. Fake it until you make it. He made it as president, and then fake it until you make it. But then he drew a bunch of attention to himself and his family. Maybe that wasn't exactly exactly. (laughs) It's gonna get real interesting. Yeah. I don't know if DJ TJ is gonna be able to afford all that coke anymore. (laughs) (laughs) DJ TJ. (laughs) That's my favorite. (laughs) Man. Tell me how, how, what, what happens when, when a modern state with all of its infrastructure, with all its electricity, with all its services, what happens when a modern state fails? And do the beginnings of it look a little bit like, you know, not being able to provide service in, in uh, a predictable uh, so, storm? So far, um, go ahead. I, it, uh, the, the thing that comes to mind no, is the, the, the failed states and the near failed states that we've had in the last few decades. Um, so the, what comes to mind is that those states failed to contain the violence that was, that was brewing. So Somalia is a classic example of that. Mexico did not fail. It is still a state, but it was in such awful shape after uh, George Bush Jr.'s policies towards Mexico that by the Obama administration, uh, Obama's first appointment to ambassador of Mexico was in fact a failed state expert. <laughs> And uh, Mexico was so incensed and furious about it, they refused to accept it. <laughs> so there was there were there were months literally where the United States had no ambassador to Mexico because of this spat over not whether or not Mexico was failing. Uh, before 1997, Bangkok was the city that Mastercard built. That was its nickname because what happened was all these business people were going to uh, Bangkok and, and investing in speculative real estate and building all these buildings. Well, mm-hmm. now it's nickname. I don't know if this is true or not, but it ought to be the city that MasterCard never built because now there's all these half-built buildings everywhere because the economy tanked in 97. Uh, and and the, for those of you who don't remember this, the whole planet went down except for Germany, China, and the United States. Wow. And yeah, it was a catastrophe. Um, Russia's economy, Japan's economy, like just gone, just evaporated. And it, and it started in Bangkok. That, that's the hilarity of it. Um, but but that's, that's a sign of a failed state. Like in that moment, Thailand had a failed state moment. Now they recovered and they didn't end up permanently failed. But 
Mm-hmm. It does make me think of ways in which the state, there are states now on earth that are semi-failed. For example, Vietnam. Vietnam and, yeah. and, and the Philippines, for that matter, are, are both examples where the state is more increasingly less and less capable of providing services. And now in Vietnam, gangs provide services. Mm-hmm. They, they do security, um, they maintain order. And that's that's a bad sign. And, and in the case of Vietnam, it's on accident. Like they didn't <laughs> mean to end up here. But in the case of the United States, this is on purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We, we contracted out uh, state social services yes, to the AGP, I think, at some point in time. <laughs> so what about Puerto Rico? How does that factor in? I mean, we just left them. I would call them a failed colony. I mean, why? What, literally, what point is there for Puerto Rico to be part of the United States? They're bankrupt and we're not bailing them out. That's like, right. What is the value? In, uh, what is the, we could trade it for Greenland. That's the only thing that I can do. <laughs> yeah, well, that's going to be really nice real estate. Yeah. Just just 20 years, Greenland. Hmm. Perfect, perfect. Perfect. It might be the little green dot. Don't move to Scandinavia, though. No. Oh, so, yeah. So really? as Greenland melts, all that cold water is going to go into is the they... North Atlantic. I don't know if y'all have ever noticed, but Europe is really far north. Yeah, it is. The way it, the way it stays warm is there is an under ocean current of hot water that comes up in the North Atlantic, and that heats up the air and then superheats Europe. If if Greenland melts suddenly and catastrophically, like the Laurentian ice sheet did, a hundred and I'm sorry, not hundred, uh, twelve thousand, eleven thousand seven hundred years ago, there we go, um, it will shut that off. And when it shut it off 11,700 years ago, it created the Younger Dryas. A Dryas is a miniature localized ice age. And there was a massive ice sheet all over Britain and Scandinavia. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. That's going to suck. I feel really bad for all my Scandinavian relatives. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also really amazing that they're so generous to refugees and they left them in because I guess they know it's coming. Yeah. It'll um, be their turn. Back to this the socialist country thing. I'm wondering, um, I have a lot of people who come to me w- when I'm talking about this. And I mean, not, they don't just randomly come up to me and say this. <laughs> but when we're talking about it, um, people will point to Venezuela as a failed uh, socialist state. And I come back with it's a republic. But for some reason, most of the conservatives I know believe that Venezuela is just a straight up socialist country that you can point to to say that's why we don't want to be socialist. What is your argument to somebody like that? You're, you're so Venez- Venezuela is a mercantilist state in the same way the Soviet Union or People's Republic of China is. Okay. Um, it is a state-run economy that claimed, claims to be socialist. And don't get me wrong, I think in the beginning, uh, Hugo Chavez really did dramatically improve the quality of lives for the brown and poor population in Venezuela. You gotta remember that Latin American states have a history of being ruled by upper-class whites. Um, And the the same upper-class whites that when a university hires uh, a member of the Latinx community, they always seem to hire white Latinx people, not brown (laughs) or black Latinx people. So, that 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 has been the, the case for centuries now. And 
in the beginning, I think Hugo Chavez was filled with a lot of hope. I, I think you, it would have been hard uh, not to be thinking, oh, this might be the path. Um, it got derailed. The state went authoritarian. The Hugo Chavez made really big mistakes. Like for example, he basically shut down every part of the Venezuelan economy except the petroleum industry because he thought we're going to want petroleum for the rest of humanity. And then the price of gasoline, the price of oil fell. Yeah. And that was absolutely catastrophic for Venezuela. Um, had the price of petroleum not collapsed, I, Venezuela would be doing a lot better right now. It was just a lot of mistakes on his part. And then Maduro is a shithead. I don't yeah. think anybody can argue otherwise. <laughs> he is a shithead. But it's not an indictment against socialism any more than uh, Sweden's success means that all socialist states are going to be remarkable. The, yeah. This is the, this idea that there's a there's a good dark side of the force and a light side of the force. This Star Wars thinking where everything is simplistic and there's there's just it's binary. It's either on or off. It's really right. really moronic. There's nuance, um, and it's complicated. Not to mention the sanctions on Venezuela. It's like anytime anyone try, they try to go to a socialist style system, uh, you know, here come the sanctions from like uh, US and European nations and stuff like that. Absolutely. So it, in the Cold War, initially, Truman said, we need to stop communism. That, that should be our number one goal every step of the way. What, by the time we got to Eisenhower, which for the record was the very next president, there was a serious shift in US policy. And instead of going after communists, we actually refocused and started going after socialists because we realized the bigger threat to capitalism was socialism, not communism. With the exception of Europe, uh, we, we mostly left Europe alone. I'm not saying we didn't do anything in Europe. We, we, we uh, funded a communist terrorist group in Italy uh, to attack Italy, our allies, so that it, with terrorism, so that it would push Italians to the right. I'm not mm. saying there wasn't any manipulation, but our primary objective was to unseat socialism in the third world. So like to go after Egypt, for example, uh, to, to really focus on these states that we thought like we needed to assassinate Patrice Lumumba and Democratic Republic of Congo. Like we wanted to go after these states that were up and coming because for one thing, we wanted to exploit the resources, but, the, but ideologically we feared that if they could be successful, it would become a beacon of hope for the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, that's what we did. And Venezuela is no exception. When, when Chavez got in, our goal was to do everything we could to destroy that, to make sure it didn't succeed. And it's tough fighting the United States. We have a lot of resources we can bring against you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, how many states have successfully done it? North Korea, Islamic Republic of Iran, Cuba. When you step out of line, the United States comes mm -hmm. after you with everything we've got. Look what we did to Iraq. Gaddafi, right? Look at Gaddafi. <laughs> Poor Gaddafi. And that was after he surrendered to us and accepted everything. Yeah. And they laughed about it. And they laughed about it. Yeah. And destroyed Libya. Libya is still a basket case. Yeah, like, they have a slave, what is it? Slave, open slave markets at, at one point. I don't know if it's still going on. But I don't know either, but yeah. Open slave markets, yeah. Wouldn't surprise me. It's, we, it's, have, we have closed ones here. <laughs> You know, underground, but we've got slave markets here. Unfortunately, that's true. Human trafficking is horrible here. Mm -hmm. 
Ooh, sound, yeah. sounds like the state of nature. Yeah, it makes me think the social contract is broken. Uh, it, the gun, the whole gun argument is the social, mm-hmm. social contract broken. I mean, literally, you, by you saying, I need to mm-hmm. have a house full of firearms to protect myself means that you no longer believe the state serves any purpose. Yes. <laughs> because the whole goal, the whole reason for the state yeah. is at least a minimal amount of security. Right. But that's uh, and that seems to be the argument with a lot of boomers anyway, with whom I discuss this. And that's, uh, well, if the government has this kind of weapon, then I should be able to have this kind of weapon, because if they if the government ever decides to come and round people up, I want to be. And I'm like, you really think you can shoot your way out of being <laughs> rounded up by the government? They have tanks. They have tanks. <laughs> if they have a tank, I should have a tank. <laughs> They're, they're also not showing up when people are being rounded uh-huh. up, right? Like, <laughs> you had your chance. Exactly You've had multiple right. of them show uh, up. They should just round people up at a gun show. That would be the easiest way to do it. <laughs> at a gun show. <laughs> oh, man. It's too crazy. Uh-huh. Okay, so... And it's like, um, yeah. But yeah, rather, oh, rather sorry, prepping it. for... I was gonna say, and it's like we get back to speaking of guns, uh, we get back to one of the reasons why the keep because uh, you would think this uh, this winter crisis would be something to knock off Abbott, right? And the same way that COVID was something that took out Trump, uh, but like guns is one reason they keep electing this guy back in. But I, I, what do y'all think? Do you think he has a chance? Do you think Abbott has a chance of coming back as governor after yes. this crisis? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think we should assume uh-huh, he's, he's, he's coming back. He has one serious disadvantage, crisis. and that is that political scientists have measured the American memory for politics, and it's two years, and uh, the election is in uh, November of next year. So what is that? Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's got to be like, uh-uh. <laughs> That's only one year and nine months. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm three um, months into the threshold. But who so. can run against him? Because the last time, uh, oh God, it was Lupe. Yeah, yeah so. everybody called her Loopy. And I was like, no, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> not Loopy. Um, but she was not a good candidate. She was a horrible candidate, in my opinion. And I have then, a hard time saying that because I have a, a soft spot for her. I adore her. I think she was great in Dallas, but she's not gubernatorial material. She, she was. She did not have the charm that I think most Americans expect out of their politicians. I went to a uh, uh, like a reception for her here in Austin, and it was a small kind of affair. And uh, Gina Hinojosa, I believe it was, got up and she said. Um, I knocked on every door, every single door of anyone I could ask to run for governor this year. And, you know, finally I looked over and Loopy was going, I'll do it. I'll do it. And so I said, yeah. And I'm like, that was not a good story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that kind of tells what the race, right? Because it was like the Dems putting up this sacrificial lamb. Yeah, that's uh, exactly what it felt like. We got to run like, someone. Who do we got back here? Let's look through the Rolodex decks. <laughs> exactly. And she was in the corner. I'll do it. I'll do it. No, 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 no. I mean, that, but that, that's a major part of American politics because we have this binary. There's the Democrats and there's the Republicans. There, there's no other alternative 
and most of the United States has become one party system. Yeah. And so so the other party knows mm-hmm. if I, you know, if I run for governor this time, I'm not going to win. But maybe in four years I have a chance. So I'm not going to run this time. So somebody has to be the filler. Um, in, in 1956, the Democratic Party famously ran Adelaide Stevenson. Right. They ran him in 52. The reason they ran him in 56 was that nobody wanted to end their career. <laughs> so he's like, I already ended my career in 52. I might as well run again. <laughs> nobody can beat Ike. I'll do it. <laughs> so this is just, this is an inherent part of American politics. What are but there's like- this consequence that the Democrats aren't calculating in. That, Which- that drives me nuts. So when Hillary Clinton ran in 2016, she didn't re- win to change America. She she ran to win. Her her goal was what what is the bare minimum I need to do to win enough of the swing states I can get elected instead of putting money into places like Texas and thinking long term. She was thinking short term, immediate gratification. One of the things that Biden did that was really remarkable is he put money into places like Texas and Georgia. And Ohio, he put money in places that you that a normal Democrat wouldn't do, and the effect was he moved the needle a little bit because he was doing some long-term thinking. And, and this is learning a lesson from like uh, when when Obama had you know this this national team that was you know sort of putting together a a more grassroots campaign, and we left that project aside after the election, realized the consequences of that, that that a long-term sustained movement that operates at the community level, at the grassroots level can, you know, make, make a shift in places yeah. that- I mean, Obama won process. famously North Carolina. <laughs> Which was... he, but he disbanded the, the coalition though, didn't he? The Obama coalition. Uh, it yeah. was kind of like, he didn't keep it going. You know what I mean? He kind of broke apart. That was one of the issues. So it's like, they need to get back to something like that where they organize, you know, massive organizing in all the states. And that's really the Howard Dean, I guess, kind of model, right? Of we're going to go everywhere and, and campaign everywhere. It's something they need. Yeah. But you need, you need funding and you need, uh, you know, funders who, who, who are ready for that kind of long-term uh, investment, right? Like we need funding and investment. And in, for example, with, 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 one of the things that drives me crazy is that there isn't a, a strong yeah. progressive uh, legal movement, right. right? On the conservative side, right, there have been uh, decades and decades of sort of building up movement within law schools, within law students, training them, making sure they're placed in the right positions and places to, to, to uh, someday get to the Supreme Court and have a, a strong conservative legal movement in the country. The same thing I don't think has been true on the progressive side. So th- that sort of generational thinking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How do we get there? <laughs> well, so I think one of the problems is, and Obama probably thought this through, sustained movements have a tendency to have a life of their own and tend to go in directions maybe you didn't want. Right. And so I think what politicians in the United States are practiced at doing is they, they create the movement, they get elected, and then they make sure to let the movement die so they don't have to deal with it later. So... Mm-hmm. Like, you don't want that? to be held accountable to people. <laughs> I, I said, you don't want to be held That's accountable true, to people. But, but also when you have a sustained movement, you get things like the January 6th insurrection. Right. You know what I mean? Like you get, you get things like what happened mm. with the cultural revolution in China. So once, once Mao was in power, mm-hmm. don't keep fanning the flames. 
But he but but he did. He and Jiang Jing kept fanning the flames until. Yeah. And I think that's one of the lessons that American politicians are very nervous about. The ones that that think, obviously, there's there's an exception. Uh, you, you don't want to let it go too far. Because once the once the public starts to drink the Kool Aid, they become dangerous. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> that's true. You need to let it keep going. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, giving them. America needs to let it keep going. Because it's like. Because we have, do have one side that keeps it going. We need to keep it going the other way. <laughs> I agree. I think yeah. politicians are short-sighted and only care about their own political careers. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah like I, Obama was a letdown for the left because he, he did a bunch of things that we didn't want him to do. And then he, he didn't do a bunch of things we did want him to do. Yeah. Um, and this is one of them. He didn't sustain a movement. Yeah, yeah. Another thing that happens, though, is when you when you completely divest from that movement building is that you create this this vacuum, right? Like after that movement is gone, after there's no space for, for example, Texan left leftists or whatever to uh, organize politically and have a chance at, at getting someone in in electoral politics, people divest from electoral politics, right? And so you have people who are right in, in protest movement or in the streets or uh, doing stuff that maybe our, our, our elected officials or both the Democratic and Republican Party maybe don't want us to be doing, uh, demanding actual structural change. If they don't have the, the, the space to vent that sort of uh, political will in so electoral I'm, politics. I'm going to admit spaces. something. When I've been a fan of Sanders for like a quarter of a century. Like I, I was a fan of Sanders in the 90s when nobody really talked. When he ran in 2015, I freaked out. I did. I, I, I did not trust what he was doing because I thought he was doing what Ramesh was talking about right there. I thought his goal was to sort of take the left end of the Democratic Party and then redirect that energy into voting for Clinton. I thought he had, he had, been, he had been bought out. Like I was in complete mm. paranoid mode. And then as time went by, I began to trust him. And I began to think, no, no, he's trying to do what Obama should have done, which was create a sustained movement and thank God, because then AOC raised $2 million for Texas and flew down here and administered $2 million worth of su support for us when our own politicians were flying to Cancun. Um, so thank God for New Yorkers. I love them. Yes. We yes. need more of them. And Beto. <laughs> Beto. I mean, can you imagine if Beto had won the Senate? That would have been, I mean, what he yeah. did for us without, without having been our senator is just incredible. I mean, how do you vote for a man like Cruz? Oh, and speaking of voting for horrible people, um, Loeffler is going to run against Stacey Abrams in Georgia. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even know Stacey was running. All righty. Well, um, I think that's all we have for the show today. <laughs> Actually, we should, we should do a plug in, a plug for Ramesh's article in the yes. Austin Chronicle. That's yes. Right. Austin Chronicle. Oh yeah, yeah. Go check out my latest, my first op-ed in the Austin Chronicle. I think if you Google like Muslim youth policing Austin Chronicle, yeah, it'll be the first thing that pops up. Check it out. Learn more about policing, protests, all of that good stuff. Uh, CV and TV, TP programs, and yeah, we'll include the link in the description. Cool. Alrighty, and. If you're in Texas, uh, please be well and be safe. 
And uh, we're hoping everyone's back up and running as fast as possible with water and electricity and everywhere else be well. And we will see you on the next episode. Thanks for tuning in. Take care. Bye.